We didn't know what was going to happen. Um, it obviously couldn't go on forever because the people were, were, were starving. And we used to watch the planes coming in every day. The planes were carrying the rice in from Saigon at that time. And if they didn't get 30 planes in, we wouldn't have enough to eat. Nobody had any idea what it would be like if it was taken over. At the very end, we left. We had to leave. We, I mean, I left. I was very lucky. I left behind a fully functioning team run by Cambodian staff, and they went on running it until, in fact, the Khmer Rouge came in. So I left on 12th of April. Um, of course, the Khmer Rouge came in on the 17th. From the office, I saw people fill the street in very chaotic way. I heard gunshots, machine guns, hand grenades, children cry because they couldn't find their mommy, daddy, and stuff like that. Uh, it was confusing to me because we heard of the end of the war. We thought of rejoining our family members. And then here, what is this? It was a, it was a shocking arrival. The airport was empty, except for a small delegation that walked up to the plane. It had a very surreal air about it. There was nothing like real life. There were no crowds, nothing. It was, it was, um, it was something like a stage set in a surreal movie. It was very bizarre. Because, as in dreams, only the very, very necessary little narrative strain is, is, um, is in your mind as you sleep. And in this case, um, all that seemed to be presented to us was whatever the regime wanted, and therefore it had that, that kind of quality. in my life that I wrote in my country. Oh, I'm very proud and feel very happy. Today I'm very happy. <laughs> and this is the, the first step for the future. This is the first time in Cambodian history that we're going to have something, uh, some uh, democratic seed. On April the 17th, 1975, Cambodia entered a nightmare from which it is only now beginning to emerge. On that day, the army of Pol Pot, the Khmer Rouge, entered the capital Phnom Penh. At first, they were welcomed by the war-weary population. In the months before the fall of the US-backed Lon Nol regime, Phnom Penh was virtually cut off. It would be difficult to exaggerate the suffering and destruction that the 1970-1975 Vietnam War brought to Cambodia. Food production fell rapidly as bombing and military operations forced peasants off their land and brought them flocking to the cities. English doctor Penny Key was working in Phnom Penh. She left on April the 12th, just five days before the Khmer Rouge took over the city. Looking back on it, the biggest impressions I have were of the enormous number of people that were in Phnom Penh um, because we were up to over two million uh, as the city got squeezed and shrunk by the fighting forces, the Khmer Rouge coming from outside. So there were people everywhere, sleeping on the pavements, streets, and, uh, of course, they were all hungry. Um, there wasn't enough food, and the, there were troops everywhere, barricades everywhere, and rockets coming in, so it was unsafe. I was uh, running a big medical team uh, servicing the refugee camps and also all the other people, um, and we had, we had a, a number of different teams that were going out every day to provide a mobile service and about three or four fixed sites 
and then we developed nutrition centres as well. So I left on 12th of April, um, plus the Khmer Rouge came in on the 17th. So there were a few days that the Khmer staff ran the whole operation and went on very well. Till the Khmer Rouge actually came in. Till they came in, and then the staff all uh, had, to dis- had to go, the same as everyone else. Must have been very difficult for you leaving, was it? It was incredibly difficult, but um, the Khmer staff were wonderful, and they, they, they carried on, and they made no bones about it. They, I had to go, and they wanted me to go, because if I didn't go, I was expressing no confidence in them. And, of course, I did have confidence in them. But you must have been very sad as well, because you didn't know what was going to happen, what no, future I, lay ahead for them. That's true. I had no idea. And, of course, as it happened, many of them were lost. Khmer Rouge revolution began before the illegal U.S. bombing of neutral Cambodia during the Vietnam War. But the results of the massive bombings, compounded by the increasing corruption of General Lon Nol's administration, made it easier for them to attract popular support and to march victoriously into Phnom Penh in April 1975. The Khmer Rouge promised to return Kampuchea, the traditional Khmer name for the country, Kambuja, first used in the 10th century, to the glorious days of Angkor, the ancient Khmer Empire, to restore Kampuchea and the Khmer people to a traditional, agricultural and class-free society. But to achieve this, human lives, especially those of the urban and middle-class Khmers and employees of Lon Nol's government, were considered expendable. The return to year zero had begun. On that day, I was uh, in uh, my office, which is adjacent to my huge recording studio. The building is still standing there, but now occupied by somebody else. Sad to see it, but uh, that's what it really happened. Uh, the Khmer Rouge troop came up to uh, to where I my office was. Um, by that time, so many people left to get home because it's really chaotic in the whole town. But people were sort of uh, uh, thinking that, oh, this is the end of the war, so we can rejoin our separated family members back in these, that, those provinces. So that's what they thought. So they rushed to get back to their home in town and to try to find out if they could find a way to, to join their, their, their separated family members in the provinces. That's what we were talking. So uh, the last person who came to me was the doorkeeper uh, who uh, was in charge of uh, taking care, closing up the recording studio and all this stuff. So as the person in charge, I said, well, you can go. I will go last. Uh, but since I go last, I will lock the door. Give me the bunch of keys. So. I got the bunch of keys and uh, hooked it on my hip. So uh, when the Camaros came, I was by myself. And the Camaros came up and said, what is this? I said, this is the office uh, of the education department. Um, not before long, uh, one of them saw the American AID's flag because that building, recording studio, and all the facilities were built and ordained to the Cambodian government in the early 60s by the, uh, the United States government under USAID's program. So any anything under that program always have a sign, shake hands, 
and with the American flag as background. As soon as one of them saw the sign, said, "Oh, Americans are here! Go for the American!" So the team leader said, "Search for the American, kill them!" My God! So I followed the team leader, who was young, and said, "Please, there are no American here. This is just a building. They're just the sign. It's been there for years." So I said, "Please, I'm the only one here." I saw the guy look at me, straight to my face, and say, "Who are you?" Oh. Who are you? It's a normal question, but on that particular day, when you saw these people arming their gun, loading their gun, and run, running around the the the, uh, the building looking for the American under in order to kill, oh, that's that's not an easy question, yeah. So I instead of saying, well, before that they said, before that they even looked for the boss. Said, look for the boss. Look for the American. Kill him. Well, look for the boss. It was me. So when the question came up, who are you? I have to not to be the boss because they were looking for the boss. So a little bit of of hesitation, and I said, I'm the doorkeeper because I have my reason. The guy looked at me again, and then lowered his eye and to my hip, and saw the bunch of keys. Oh, oh! You stay behind, lock the door. I said, Yes, I'm leaving soon, but I have to lock all the doors first. Along the road, I uh, saw horrible scene. I saw dead bodies, uh, dead bodies with 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 military uniform. That's common scene for the past four years before 1975 because they kill each other. So it is okay, but. I saw dead bodies with civilian clothing and women and infant, and that that's quite horrifying, because one day before they said the war ends. To me, it means no more killing, no more uh, suffering to the people. The people did nothing. The people just want to be left alone and live like everybody else. But when I move out. Which is along this road, which is a few blocks from here to the east, move out, and to up there to the south, outside the the the, the city skirt, I started seeing dead bodies, civilians, infants, women. So I thought, oh, this is not peace. This is something else. This is a new era of something else, even more terrible. For the next three years, Cassie No was to experience the horror of living in the country the Khmer Rouge had renamed Democratic Kampuchea. More than a million Cambodians were to die in the killing fields, but Cassie, who changed his identity to that of a taxi driver, survived despite being imprisoned and tortured. I had to convert myself from a director of an office to a plowboy. It's, it's, this is not funny, but somehow this is this is unbelievable that I could do it. I never thought I could do it. I was not a peasant, but to survive, you got to do it. If you don't do it, you you pay the big price. So you don't want to pay the big price, which is your life. Each evening, people pray. The prayer was just one word: "Please, not my name tonight." Because they came in the dark, 
and they call two or three names. And uh, yeah, whose, those whose names were called were executed, not very far from the uh, center. So would you hear people shouting no, and crying? Hear people or shouting, but we saw half of a leg unburied, you know, half of a body and something like that, and we recognized the guy, our inmate. The reason that keep me alive is hope. I hope that the next day or tomorrow or the next week there might be changes and will be for the better. What were they like? Were they young people yes. Yeah, <clears throat> yes. from the country? They were teenagers, country boys, don't read and write. One of them did, the rest are totally illiterate. And you are dealing with a bunch of wild animals there, with guns and uh, hatchet axe. And did they have any humanity in them? Was there any way you could, at any stage, were you ever able to relate to them in any way? Oh, yes, 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 mm. yes. They are, they are human beings, but they are sort of uh, misled. Programmed. Yes, programmed. Because there, there are times when they socialize among themselves. They talk human stuff. They talk compassion. They talk nostalgia. They want to go home to rejoin their family, parents, mommy. They're human. They're like the other human. But when they come to, to the position of, 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 let's say, a cadre of soldiers, they are different, different group of people. Two jail guards, who of course are illiterate, guarded the jail, and one of them appeared to be the single son of the high-ranking official, officer of the district. I said, I am so bored. Two hours is too long. So I said, well, I, I'm not uh, good at telling stories. Anything you know, tell me. I'm so bored. You know, two hours, too long. So I started telling stories very carefully, selected selecting very carefully. I start from Khmer folk tale, a race which is very common, a race between a, a rabbit and a turtle. Right? Yeah. A race between rabbit and snails. Um, went on to um, stories that I recollect very well in my mind when I worked as director in charge of the program of English teaching on radio and television Cambodia was stories I translated, I converted, I recorded it, and I controlled it on the air because that's my responsibility of overall of supervision. Uh, I remember those stories. But those stories were in reel-to-reel -reel tape produced by the BBC for Far East program called Stories from Asia, series one, two, and three. So I went on and on from Khmer folk tale to Aesop fable from the BBC and to Fab uh, La uh, Fontaine, stuff like that about animal. And it worked. It worked. They like to hear my story. Of course, I don't think they like me, but you know, this is a way to get them closer or to get closer to them. Right? They like to hear my story. The first story is that. They ask me, oh, that's so good. Tell me again the same story. Oh, I'd like to hear it again. I'd like to hear it again. 
And what happened was first shift, two hours. Heard the story. Change shift come. The first shift people, soldiers, told the second shift soldier, I just heard this old man tell beautiful story. And so the, 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 the new shift guy said, Oh, what is it? What is it? What was it about? Oh, tell me what was it about? And the guy said, Ask him, ask the old man, because I was very old at that time, with, without food and stuff like that, and, and no shaving and all the stuff. So it's, it was really old. I'm younger now. <laughs> uh, so he said, Okay. See, even they, before they gave order about their mission, about their work, they came to me and said, Make sure tell me the same story you just told our comrade back there. I said, yeah. So stories, the same again, story, the second shift, third shift, fourth shift, and last shift, all night long, telling stories. So as a result, I work all day. I told stories all night. That was worse than anything else. But morally better because... I felt I was needed. The difference between somebody is needed and somebody is not needed is deadly. In some ways, it's easier to take the poverty of a country if you can see the people as human beings. But the awful, dreadful part was that they were like robots. They couldn't talk to me. It was as if there was a shield between us. And they, their humanity was repressed, beaten out of them by the regime. That was very, 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 very hard. Um, you know, I went back many times later, and each time, regardless of the, in some ways, the material aspects of their lives, it was just nice to, nice to see the humanity come back and the people begin to act like themselves, however dreadful their, their particular situations were. Historian and journalist Elizabeth Becker was one of only two Western journalists to visit Cambodia during the Khmer Rouge rule. She arrived in December 1978, two weeks before the overthrow of the regime by the Vietnamese. Malcolm Caldwell, a British academic who supported the Khmer Rouge, was also on the trip. But in a bizarre twist, he was murdered the night before the group left. We came there at um, the turning point in Indochinese, in the Indo- post-war Indochina. Uh, we were there the last two weeks before um, the Vietnamese invasion. And all throughout the trip, which was um, throughout the country, by car, we heard rumors of, of war. We heard... Um, rumors that the Vietnamese would invade and Cambodian communist um, statements they wouldn't stand a chance and we were we were very much day by day caught up in fears of war uh, this led this was compounded the basic fear that you know obviously it, at least for me that um, things weren't right that um, the, the regime was hiding things and um, it, by the last night, it, all of us were looking forward to getting out of that country. But instead, on the last night, around one in the morning, uh, gunmen attacked us in our guest house, um, threatened me and the other reporter, Richard Dudman, 
and walked into the bedroom of Malcolm Caldwell and um, murdered him, shot him dead. The whys and wherefores are still um, unclear. Um, as many documents have been produced from secret files, but it's still not obvious why they did it. But it had the effect of um, confirming that um, that this was a regime divided among itself and um, a regime that certainly was was um, not welcoming to foreigners. I'm one of only two Western uh, reporters, I believe, to have interviewed Pol Pot. And this was literally on the eve of the um, invasion by Vietnam. And uh, I think we spent two hours with him. A battery of interpreters, a very um, uh, restrained but elaborate occasion where uh, he was seated at the end of the vast, vast hall of the former Governor General's Palace. He was at one end looking very much like um, the Wizard of Oz, and we were walked in through a huge, through the huge open billowing curtains, walked up to him, we had a little chit-chat, and then he gave an exposition on, um, on uh, his view of the world. And that was a very, again, a very bizarre, frightening vision. He thought that the Vietnamese invasion would bring on the ultimate clash of East and West, with NATO troops supporting his side and uh, East Bloc troops supporting Vietnam's side. And it was, it was part of, a, it was a centerpiece of a very long megalomanic kind of exposition because he felt he was the center of the earth and Cambodia was the center of the earth so that the entire world would pay attention to Cambodia and um, the threat from the Vietnamese. He, um, he looked quite, um, I would say, handsome. I could see that for the first time I understood the charisma the man had. I could see how he could have grown up as a leader, whereas previously I couldn't imagine that the Cambodians would have followed him, but I could see that he did exert um, a very special but charismatic appeal. He, he had a nice smile. He had a, there was a, almost a delicacy about him, and he was obviously very forceful. And he, he, he clearly became the center of that room, and he, he clearly was comfortable trying to become the center of the universe. He had all those kinds of qualities that are required for a dictator. like trying to figure out what makes the bell sound. If you take the clangor off and the, the, the dome, you don't have anything. And that's what they did. Destroyed Buddhism. And destroy, I don't mean to simply box, um, close the doors to a church, the way one re- thinks of it in Eastern Europe. I mean desecrating the temples, turning them into killing grounds, defrocking monks, killing them, and uh, destroying what, what, what the symbols and the books of the faith. But it also went ev- through everything. Um, in the name of, of uh, modernizing uh, and cleansing Cambodia, uh, dance, arts, crafts, everything that couldn't very um, immediately, in a very simple-minded way, be manipulated to the, um, 
to the to the needs of the regime was thrown out. So it was completely taking away the things that make life wonderful. Uh, from getting to see your friends at the marketplace, they destroyed markets. There was no market. There was no money. There was no reason to exchange. You had to, your things were given to you. So when I when you, it's culture, it's much bigger than what I could talk about in terms of dance or arts and crafts or or religion. It is everything. It, you 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 get up in the morning. You walk. You walk out to the river to bathe. No, you couldn't do that anymore. You go to the market, talk to your friends, find out when is the best time for planning, go back. No, you couldn't do it anymore. Send your children to school. No, there are no more schools for them. See your relatives in the village um, during the rainy season. No, you can't move without permission. In fact, the families were divided, and I think that's as much culture as anything else. Parents were divided from their children. Children were sent to dormitories. Often men and women were split up. You were taken out of your home village that your family would have been in for centuries. It was all destroyed because the only loyalty was to be a loyalty to the state, to the regime. And so it's, it's culture in the most extraordinary, massive way. It was taking the life out of the country. On December the 25th, 1978, the Vietnamese invaded Cambodia, routing the Khmer Rouge, who had been making repeated incursions into Vietnam. Rescued by their traditional enemy, for Cambodians their rule by the Khmer Rouge regime was over. Many Cambodians didn't even realise who the Vietnamese were, and said they didn't care as long as they were freed from their yoke of terror. As one man said to me later, we didn't care if the devil himself rescued us as long as we were saved from the Khmer Rouge. But the Cambodians were to be isolated again by the West, who refused to recognise the new government because it was backed by Vietnam. In 1979, a shocked world responded generously to the plight of Cambodia and funded a massive relief operation. The Cambodian people started to build their country from scratch. Initially, funds provided by the United States under the Carter administration were of major importance. But in January 1981, that support stopped as part of a policy introduced by the new administration, frequently described as Bleed Vietnam White. Western governments now refused to aid Cambodia, and the United Nations only recognised the coalition government of democratic Kampuchea in exile, which included the Khmer Rouge. Eva Mislievich, author of Punishing the Poor, arrived in Phnom Penh soon after the Khmer Rouge defeat. Well, coming in the 1980s was a very traumatic experience because people were just coming out of the uh, Khmer Rouge genocide and they were still crisscrossing the country looking for relatives who had survived. The city had previously been abandoned and there were very few residents here and there was massive destruction everywhere and, and nothing really functioning yet there was no infrastructure, very little administration, yet there was no money. Um, hospitals had been evacuated and uh, schools didn't exist anymore, so it was really starting everything from scratch. And a, uh, a good part of the population was malnourished and, uh, and on the verge of uh, starvation. 
and a lot of illness, the more vulnerable people died and uh, the ones who survived were real survivors but in very bad uh, physical condition. And this was supposed to be post-harvest season but on their way out the Khmer Rouge had burned the stores of uh, the warehouses of rice. So it was a, a crucial and very uh, dramatic situation at that time. And there were so few foreigners here that uh, as they began to uncover mass graves, they took us everywhere to witness you know, the fact that these were mass graves so that the world would believe that there had been some kind of uh, genocide uh, or, or massacre in Cambodia. The propaganda was very much saying the opposite, that the Vietnamese were doing this, that Cambodians should leave the country, and uh, at a time when, you know, they needed international support, people were re really could not believe what was happening here. They'd just been saved, and the international community turns against them for, you know, no other reason than the fact that they'd been saved by the Vietnamese and not someone else. There were actually jur journalists who came in at that time, and I remember some that came with the peace delegation, and they said to me, how do you know that these people weren't massacred by the Vietnamese? And, uh, you know, all, all you had to do was find an interpreter and listen to story after story after story uh, of people's experiences and you know can you say everyone was brainwashed everyone uh, was lying it was no I mean the, the situation was too real to try to make it into something that it wasn't it was the only country where development aid was refused they did receive uh, food and medical assistance not in same proportions as the people who had fled on on the border, but there was a massive relief effort. But when that stopped in 1982, the UN decided that, uh, you know, the emergency was over. That's when you really felt the, uh, the embargo, because then, um, you know, aid had to really be justified as relief and not even reconstruction, but just relief. Uh, and it's I mean, it was incredible that that embargo lasted so long until the signing of the peace accords in 91. Um, it, it was punishing people who were victims of a, of a situation. They'd been liberated by someone that was unpopular to the international community or to countries that uh, gave in to pressures of the big powers who were against... Uh, Vietnam and, uh, you know, again, people didn't understand why they were being punished for this. And the, also at this time that the Khmer Rouge were being rehabilitated at the Thai-Cambodian border. They were a defeated army when they were chased out of uh, Cambodia and they were rehabilitated. And again, it was in 1980. 82, 83, that the you know war escalated again because they were uh, they had recuperated, they were more powerful, they had were receiving arms, and uh, they were receiving support from the international community in various ways. So they were, the Cambodians were not only being punished by 
an embargo that was preventing assistance, but also assistance was being given to the very people who had uh, committed this, you know, horrible thing to them. And uh, I mean, we, in a way, we see it again uh, happening recently with the Khmer Rouge who refused to join the election process and uh, you know then uh, it's being suggested by various people that they should be included in uh, in the new government even though they had their chance people voiced their opinion what they thought about it they refused to be terrorized by the Khmer Rouge they all went out to vote and uh, you know, then you have people suggesting they should be taken into the new new government. So here we are trying again to rehabilitate the the monster. You know? and, and we're we're not talking about the the uh, you know Khmer Rouge soldiers. We're talking about the Khmer Rouge leadership, the people who were responsible for designing that uh, genocide plan. <laughs> Cambodian song of reconciliation begs the Khmer Rouge to lay down their arms. But the Khmer Rouge still fight on under Pol Pot. Despite threatening that they would kill any Cambodian who voted in last May's elections, more than 90% of the electorate came out to vote. In Siem Reap province in the northwest, one of the areas where the Khmer Rouge are still strong, Yasushi Akashi, head of the 22,000 strong United Nations Transitional Authority in Cambodia, UNTAC, met some voters. You think uh, you really made a free choice? Nobody told you to vote this way or that way? Very good, very good. I think you should be proud and you are the masters of Cambodia. This is the gentleman who has just voted and wanted to ask you some questions yes, personally. Yes, please. I'm I'm very happy to see you in person. Very good. I'm happy to see you. I'm so so my um, he's asking you, how do you feel? Uh, I'm very happy that uh, so many Cambodian people, despite all the obstacles, have come to vote to exercise their right and uh, their hope for new Cambodia. Today, Cambodians have a coalition government, the Cambodia People's Party, who ruled a one-party state until the elections, and King Sihanouk's party, Funsimpec, once partners in a coalition with the Khmer Rouge. In the last week, government forces have attacked the Khmer Rouge in the northwest. Cambodians are now facing the future. They can't forget the past, but they're enthusiastic about building a new society. Nightmare is a permanent thing to us. Even now, I'm still having nightmare. 
sometimes we scream in the middle of the night and that's uh, nothing strange it's come from this affected by the experience by the horror yeah we, we dream a lot of bad things sometimes but we try to calm down ourselves by joining peace march meditation and all this stuff you know if we cannot help other people we try to help ourselves from going crazy because of stuff like that Cassie No, in a refugee camp for a year after the overthrow of the Khmer Rouge, later went to the United States, where he became very successful. Now back in Cambodia, he set up the Cambodia Institute of Human Rights. I told the Khmer Rouge, in trying to hide my identity, I told the Khmer Rouge I was a cab driver, which I was not a cab driver in Phnom Penh. But when I got to the state, I became a cab driver in Washington, D.C. <laughs> So you, you, you were fated to be a captain. <laughs> yeah, I, I taught English. I got a job. I got a good job teaching English to refugees in Washington. The most prominent job for a refugee who just arrived because of my English competency. But, you know, living there for a while, you feel that, well, you can make money, more money by doing that and that and that. And the country gives so much opportunity to people to make their own choice of what to do and what to so I, I, I taught English in the daytime. I drove taxi cab in the evening. And I made double the money, double the amount of money I earned from my, my English language teaching. My mother went with me, my two kids went with me, my brother and sister joined me later, different trip. Yes, so I taught English in the daytime, driving, driving taxi cab at night. I saved enough money from two sources. Buy, I bought another cab rented to students from Senegal. So I have three sources of income. Save money quicker, I bought another cab. Four sources of income. Until 1986, I own 47 taxi cabs in Washington, D.C., a gas station with three-bay garage and a huge land in Washington. And a huge what? Land. Land. Yes, mm. in Washington. But you're a wealthy man. Well, I was you a wealthy were. man. Right now, I'm a human rights advocate. I don't have much. <laughs> Cassie's wife died during the Khmer Rouge years. He's now remarried to a Cambodian woman he met in the US, whose husband also died at that time. Between them, they have six children. He first returned to Cambodia in 1989. I was at tears seeing my homeland after nearly 20 years away. Uh, feeling sorry for the country because when I left the country, it was a beautiful country, a beautiful city of Phnom Penh, a beautiful airport, nice and clean. And when I came back in uh, 1989, it was a different country, uh, different people, different look in their faces, different version of their language. They speak Khmer, but in a different style. How do you mean? So, uh, well, you know, uh, they live through this hardship for so long, so their language getting mixed with uh, uh, impatience, with a quick reaction, with unpredictable uh, reaction, and some language is sort of like you hear the kids talking. You can see violence and anger in there. Uh, we didn't have that before in, in, in our culture. We don't have it, and, and during the peacetime, we, 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 we were living in harmony, not like this. So I, I feel sorry for the country, and I felt when I first came, I felt I am a stranger in my homeland. And my wife would like to come, see if she can do something to pay her debt to the country too. We feel we owe a lot to this country.
biggest threat to Cambodia really is poverty. And, uh, you know, that's what will decide whether Khmer Rouge uh, become powerful again or not. Uh, that's what allowed Khmer Rouge to get support in the 70s. And uh, I think the government needs to seriously look at improving the quality of life in rural areas, not just in urban areas, and to make a significant difference there. That, uh, that that's really the key to the future, I think. Penny Key returned to Cambodia in 1989 to help restore the health service. Uh, very, very difficult. Um, uh, of course, uh, trying to find some of the people I knew before, and the very few of them left. Um, and when, I, when one did find, uh, I had been corresponding with one or two, they were very frightened to talk to me or be seen with me. And that was the most difficult thing, understanding, understanding that, trying to understand why they were so frightened. And then um, going about a life uh, that was very restricted and uh, constrained in who you could meet and what you could do. And why were they frightened of meeting you? They didn't know what would happen to them. People in the past had been killed for associating with foreigners. And they didn't know what was changing and whether they'd have the same fate. Uh, as it happened, they didn't. And so gradually more of them began to come out and, and talk more openly. But it took a period of months and even years until they were really felt free to be able to talk and uh, work with us in the same way that they did before. I think the, the freedom for the people, the expression of their freedom in movement all over the country, in and out of the country, and even within Phnom Penh, I mean, witness the huge numbers that came out on the, for the boat festival. Huge numbers of people coming out, all dressed up in their best to watch the fireworks. And this wouldn't have happened two years ago. And now suddenly they're free. And wonderful it is. <laughs>